Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Timothy, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay Hall, who is a conductor based in Lancashire. Jay subscribes to my Patreon page at the conductor level, and his subscription means that he could choose an episode to sponsor, and so thank you to Jay for sponsoring this episode. More about my Patreon page later on. Today, I conduct a conversation with a French conductor, who shot to fame after winning the Donatella Flick competition in the year 2000. Since then, he's held title positions in Belgium, Germany and the UK, as well as starting his own period instrument ensemble, Les Siècles, in 2003. It's a great pleasure to welcome François-Xavier Roth. François, it is wonderful to see you, to speak to you and to meet you. We've never met. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Good. And you're in Nîmes in France, which uh, weather-wise is probably an awful lot better than here in Birmingham. We're suffering with Storm Franklin at the moment, uh, on the straight on the back of Storm Eunice. So we're getting battered by winds and rain. But I'm assuming Nîmes is a lot calmer today. Yes, it's calm. Uh, we have sun, definitely. It's also windy, but it's a place I like very much. So... Uh, also with wind, it's fine, and I'm very happy to be here. So, I always go back to the beginning, and I've done my homework, as I always do, and you are a Parisian, and you come from rather a musical family. Your father was, and maybe still is, uh, an organist um, in Paris, and your brother's a viola player. So, music was around you all the time. What was it like growing up with music, and when did you start learning an instrument? So music started with my father, indeed. He's still an organist. He's a very famous organist. He plays in Saint-Sulpice, Paris. When I was a child, he was in Sacré-Cœur Montmartre in Paris. Mm. My brother is indeed a viola player, Vincent Roth. And I started to play the flute as I was, I think, eight years old. And it's not because of my father, because of my grandfather on the side of my mother, who was uh, an amateur flutist. So it's mm. really a chance if I once discovered in his house a box and I asked him, uh, what is this box? And he said, it's a flute. He was blind, so he had to touch it. And then he started to construct it in front of me. And it was the beginning of me uh, being a flutist. And, uh, but still, Music was uh, even before my birth present yeah. in my life because of yeah. my father. Yes, of course. Yeah, I would imagine you experienced it from before birth all the way through, especially, you know, if your mother was going, sitting in um, in uh, Sacré-Cœur, listening to him play the organ. Yeah, I, of course you would have experienced it. And the flute became your passion. Um, I'm assuming... Well, actually, from what I know about France, that maybe you did and maybe you didn't play in youth orchestras or town bands or, I mean, I mean living in Paris. As you got better at the flute, did you start playing in orchestras at all or ensembles? Ah, that's very interesting because when you mentioned that, uh, it's actually, and maybe it's different now, but this is what something we miss in France, yeah. is the trainings uh, of the music through the orchestra. Yeah. So... I, I was in contact with the orchestra playing quite late. Maybe I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 years old. And I remember very, very this moment because for me it was such an amazing joy. I have to say that I waited certainly for a long time to be part of an orchestra. And as you know, flutists, we are two or three in a in symphonic orchestra, so it's not so yes. much. And the wind ensembles, don't exist that much in France, I have to say. Uh, maybe, especially in Paris, it's maybe different in the region, but in Paris, um, doesn't exist so much. So it was a great pleasure to uh, once being part of a symphonic orchestra. And, yeah. But it was quite late. Um, the, the, the musical training in my country in those years were more private lessons, um, solfege, a bit of chamber music, but it was not I have to say that it's exciting. It was a bit 
uh, all times, but now it's certainly different. And were you excited? I'm assuming because of musical parents, musical father. Were you excited to play an orchestra for the first time because you'd already seen an orchestra and gone as an audience member and, and discovered what an orchestra can sound like? Yes, I was all, always fascinated by the, the sound of the orchestra as I was uh, already not a, a, a pupil of flute. I mean, when I was very young, maybe five or six years old, I heard the symphonic orchestra. I was amazed, uh, especially by the, the sound of the strings. Mm. And um, being part of an orchestra, it was, like I said, uh, an old dream because I, I, I didn't know I wanted to be a conductor, but that is definitely true. But I, I was fascinated by this, this machine, by this <laughs> group of people playing together. And, uh, and certainly because my father is an organist, I had in my DNA show uh, already the, the, the aspect of the, the variety of the sounds. And um, I don't know, but for me it was something really um, a passion uh, to play in an orchestra. And after that, as I became a professional flutist, I had the privilege to play a lot in the orchestras. And I was so glad of that. Yeah. Where were you a professional flautist? I, as I said, I always do my homework, but I couldn't find where you were a professional flautist. Were you a member, um, you a member of orchestra or were you freelance? I was member of an orchestra which doesn't exist anymore, which was a private orchestra, Orchestre Symphonique Francais. Mm. And I was uh, 18 years old when I entered it, so I was very lucky, uh, really. Um, but then I, I did freelance a lot in all the Parisian orchestras. So uh, the Opéra de Paris, the Radio Orchestra, the Orchestre de Paris, I played there very, very uh, regularly. Uh, I, I think I was a very good, especially piccolo player. So I was, uh, uh, yes, and people uh, liked my playing. So I was very often there and I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. So the big word has not appeared yet. Uh, the C word, conducting. Um, in past episodes, it's been called stickitis or taking your first sip of stick poison. Um, when was it that you realised, well, actually, do you know, th I think I'd quite like a go at conducting. And... And what did you do about it when you realized that? So, first of all, um, I, because I was curious about this role, for sure, I was attracted by it. So I uh, may have said that mm. to some conductors I used to work with. So when I was playing in the orchestra, it was uh, quite a few times the conductors asked me could you conduct this passage that I hear in the hall? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was 18, 19 years old. Um, and for sure it was uh, only a kind of beginning and not, not serious at all, but still I did it a couple of times. And then um, I don't know, it was later on, I was 22, 24 years old. I thought, um, I have to start because uh, <laughs> if there is a if there is a chance or something which uh, comes out of it, I need at least to try it. Yeah. And yeah. I was a very young father, so I I was already father, and uh, my wife at the time uh, also encouraged me and said, but yes, if you want it, uh, just give it give it a try. So. I, I, I was already a professional musician, but I started to be uh, again a student yeah. and uh, prepared myself for the Conservatoire de Paris, the, the conducting class at the age of, yes, 25, 26, I can't remember. And uh, that was a restart. And at the same time, I started to uh, conduct uh, amateur orchestras in Paris, in the churches, for uh, several projects, and, and I enjoyed it a lot. And, and I tried some choral repertoire with orchestra and some uh, small symphonic works, etc. I read that you were taught by Janos Furst, uh, yes. that's how you pronounce his name. He is a teacher whose name has not appeared, I'm absolutely sure of this, in the previous over 100 episodes. And I always ask this question, of a new teacher or a new teacher's name, was he 
50-50, stick technique and score study, or was he skewed much more towards stick and less towards score? What was his teaching style like? So Janos Fürst is actually one of the greatest conducting teacher of the past years. Yeah. Unfortunately, he decided or moved to become a conducting teacher very late, yeah. and he didn't leave enough time. So maybe at least he, he did teach, I don't know, 10 or 12 years yeah. in Paris Conservatoire, and after that a little bit in London. But he was an amazing teacher. And I, I say that to you, he was also amazing because he was totally not academic teacher. Right. So he was saying, whatever is the, the baton technique, if it exists, <laughs> is nothing. The choreography is nothing. Yeah. Everything you have to find is in the score and how you communicate it and how you build a, a kind of dramaturgy in your rehearsals to get this result. Yeah. So, and, and his teaching was also so uh, touching in a way and so essential for me that the basis on uh, his experience came um, from uh, his, ex his own experience as a conductor because he had a career as a conductor. Yes. We can say a, a, a quite successful career, but most of the time, uh, the, the material for his teaching was his failure as a young conductor. Okay. And he would share that to us, so it, it's not so common, mm. and saying, you know, when that happened to me, I realized that I needed to do that instead of that, etc. And it was really exciting, very challenging, because every time we used to, to stand in front of the orchestra and he was there, he was so... Um, pressured us in the best way saying uh, you know guys you're in front of almost professional musicians you have to deliver so he mm. was not at all like um, uh, taking care of his gentle students no he was very tough and I have to say I learned a lot from him a lot and mm. in my same generation uh, there was also the great Czechish uh, conductor Jural uh, Valchua, who is now in America, I can't remember now, is that St. Louis that he took over, I think. He's a great conductor. We were a couple of conductors uh, who did a career after that, and, and he was really an amazing teacher, Janusz mm. Fürst. Well, what's interesting about that is, you know, we're going to go on very soon to Donatella Flick and two years with the LSO. But what's interesting about that is that he's almost giving you the bad conductor's experiences or the, you know, his, his failures, his mistakes, the sort of things you learn when you're assistant, you know, you're sitting there and you watch conductor after conductor after conductor for two years come into the LSO. And you, you, of course, you see Hightick, you see Boulez, you see Colin Davis, but you also see the ones where the orchestra and the TQ afterwards are going, oh my God. And you learn more possibly from the bad ones than the good ones. And it sounds like he was giving you that advice. You know, I did this in my early career. Don't do it. Or I said this in one rehearsal. If you say that, you're going to lose the orchestra. They're, they're nuggets, aren't they? They're gold nuggets of, of wisdom that you get early on. But sometimes it could take you four or five years to learn by yourself. You know, don't you, don't you agree? Yeah, completely. And I already have to say, I noticed for sure as I was an, an orchestral musician, I, I should uh, and I could also experience what works, what doesn't work. But when you are on the other side, if I may say, it's another thing that when you realize on the podium, all the parameters that you have to deal with for sure affects your judgment and your, your way to behave. Mm. But certainly he was completely... Uh, in a way, so uh, pragmatical about all these aspects and also so higher than some, sometimes you can expect in a conducting class because he's, he made, for example, the, the difference between direct and conduct very mm. clearly. He said you can entertain a group, but it's not the same than conduct it. 
And the vision that you have to build also as a musician to inspire the people in front of you who most of the time when you start to conduct know much more than you and have so much experience for sure. So all these parameters, and I have to say, the rehearsal technique. Because if something could be, can be taught in a conducting class, that's the rehearsal. Mm. The rehearsal could be really uh, articulated in so different ways. Also, it's your personality, it's the music you conduct for sure, but there are things which really are patterns and that you can give to the young generation just to, to build up their mind how a rehearsal can be prepared and can be rehearsed. Mm, that's so true. And for sure, you, you quoted some from very famous names of very great conductors, but even these conductors, when I had the, the privilege to assist them, some rehearsals were not so great. And you can learn also from somebody who is not famous, but who is doing a fascinating job. I mean, it's not uh, binary and you can learn from every. <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Well, let's go to the year 2000. And when you win the Donatella Flick competition, and then as part of that prize, you become the assistant conductor of the LSO for two years. When you entered, um, I mean, so many times in the podcast, people have said, I entered thinking, well, I might get through a couple of rounds, and then I might stick around and see how the final goes. What were your thoughts on entering? And how did you, what do you remember of the competition? I mean, it's 22 years ago now, but what do you remember of it? No, the, the memories are very, very uh, alive in my, in my mind, yeah. because for sure it was an important time, because also I thought at the time, uh, as you said, I, I kept my, my return ticket to Paris because I wanted to hear and to experience the final round. Yes. But never thought I could be part of it. Uh, not because uh, I didn't believe in myself, but I, I, I did believe I was not a, a competition guy. Right. And I still yeah. think I'm not. <laughs> and, and if I remember the first round, I don't think I was so good in the first round, but by any chance I was uh, taking from for the second round and then I started to I, I, I think I was better in the second round and in the final round I mean it was uh, an amazing memory because um, first time first thing it was my first time in London mm. ever yeah. so can you imagine I was uh, almost 30 years old a, a, a Parisian and I arrive in London and this city is fascinating as well. Yeah. With so much lighter. And then, not only London, but then for the final round, Barbican, LSO. Yeah. So to find the artist entrance first of the Barbican. <laughs> yeah, that's not easy. <laughs> for a Parisian, it's a nightmare. So uh, enough, I was uh, lots in advance, so I, I, I could search. And then I get, uh, I got into the hall, heard this sublime orchestra. And I thought, man, what do you do here? What will you do with this amazing band? And I have to say, so it was my turn to rehearse. I went uh, on the podium and they were so kind. They were so supportive. And I have to tell you that also for me was more than a discover because as I was a French a professional musician, I was trained that always the conductor is in a way the enemy. <laughs> and suddenly to have an orchestra and some members coming to me and say, Francois, we are so glad. We, we wish you so good vibes for tonight. For me, it was completely surreal. Yeah, so yeah. it was a great day. I was uh, stuck into my uh, small dressing room in the basement of the Birmingham the, the whole day and the, the final round, the, the, the concerts. We were two joint winners with Pablo Gonzalez, a very close friend to mine. We became the two of us, the, the, the assistants of the, the orchestra. And it was really a dream and, and a moment that I won't forget. To me, the, the joy about that competition is then 
you have two years as an assistant conductor. I watched an interview where you said you were very happy that things at this time were slow. You know, yes, of course, you've won one of the major conducting competitions, but you still then have two years of not conducting many concerts, but attending rehearsals and and learning, being a a sponge, absorbing information and wisdom. Um, What do you remember of those years? I mean, you've already said that some rehearsals were better than others. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I... I was assistant to the orchestra I was a member of, so I knew everybody, I knew. But with you, I'm sure you formed friendships with people and, and maybe people who could be honest with you and say, hey, Francois, I thought today your rehearsal was brilliant. And then another time would sit down with you and say, look, Francois, I think maybe you need to do this or do that. But what do you take away from your two years there? I mean, obviously it's a wonderful relationship because you're, since 2017, you've been principal guest and you've obviously been conducting there for the whole of the last 22 years, but... Yes, but you know, it's very interesting because, um, yes, like I said, it was another, another time yeah. um, and, and really slow yeah. and, and in the best sense possible. Because for sure, when I had uh, with Pablo the, the final concert of the competition and then we had the schedule of the orchestra, blah, blah, blah. So we were in our clouds, you know, and, and it was very high and you yeah. can imagine that. But suddenly you go at the first level and you are in the hall, you bring coffee to the conductor. Uh, do you need something? Um, I have my score. It's basic work, but essential work to understand how it works yes. between an orchestra and a conductor and the orchestra itself alone, what needs an orchestra. And uh, I mean, I spent months like that in the shadow completely in the shadow, profiting a lot, uh, taking from people like Pierre Boulez, who I met really there, uh, the young Tony Papano at the time, who was absolutely so generous, for sure, Colin Davis, uh, Johnny Gardner, all these amazing people came in so often to the LSO. Maris Janssens, mm. Maris Janssens, with the LSO, it was such a match together. And I, I learned a lot from these people. Uh, I learned a lot also because I wanted personally to be prepared as a, an assistant conductor all the time, every time, if I had to jump into the concert. Yes. So I yeah. made the pressure myself so high that I needed to learn uh, lots of repertoire. And I think this is something crucial because uh, after that, I met uh, many young assistant conductors who um, just, uh, I, I, I exaggerate, but uh, hardly just bought the score. <laughs> but you know, if you prepare it so intensively, it's, an, it's another week simply. So it was very, very uh, interesting for me, very fascinating for me. And then I think it was one year and a half after that, they started to propose me a first family concert. Mm. And I was completely also, uh, for sure, very happy, but uh, I, I, I was scared because I didn't conduct it the orchestra since then. <laughs> and started a very slow thing. And I can say that with the LSO in my, yes, early years, I did everything possible with an orchestra. I did some, uh, concerts in, in, in the hotels of London, some <laughs> concerts with only kids doing some um, open strings uh, with the LSO uh, sections. I did everything possible and it was so um, interesting and I learned so much with them. Mm. Well, that's wonderful. I'm gonna focus on one name you've just mentioned. Uh, which is John Elliott Gardner. And I wonder whether, because I, I know you assisted him, I wonder whether he and maybe other people, maybe Roger Norrington, whoever you met at the time, were the inspiration behind the founding of your orchestra in 2003, Le Siecle, which is a period instrument uh, ensemble. Um, why did you find it, found it, start it? Um, and, and, and the period instrument thing, was it something that was already bubbling away in your brain before you met John Elliott and, and others? How did that, how did it start? Why did it start? So, yes, indeed, it was before, because when, uh, f- first of all, 
My father is a great champion of uh, uh, period instruments. Ah. His own uh, organ instrument in Saint-Sulpice is the, the, the biggest example of a romantic organ really restored and, and sounding like, like it was in the 19th century. Ah. So I think I had in my DNA this uh, uh, aspect of every organ has its color and its uh, signature. Mm. And then for sure, as I was a teenager, it was the beginning of the CDs. So yeah. I'm 50, I remember exactly the first CD I bought, Johnny the Gardiner Magnificat Bach, and it was a great memory also to build the library as a young, uh, the teenager musician, with all this rediscovery of a repertoire we thought we knew. So when I heard the first Bach by uh, also Gustav Leonard and the first uh, Mendelssohn by Bruggen and Harnoncourt rediscovering Beethoven, all these uh, recordings, it was in my culture of a teenager student musician. Mm. And I have to say for sure, John Elliott was very important because I had the pleasure, the honor to work directly with a conductor who thought but like Pierre Boulez, who thought the orchestra I want to conduct doesn't exist. <laughs> I create it. Yeah, yeah. And this passion, this vision, this also uh, energy to build it, for sure, it was so impressive. I mean, when you meet musicians who are not only great musicians, but who are people who could uh, invent the new institutions in our musical life that uh, uh, allows them to express themselves as musicians. So yeah. it was a journey for sure, but also very much Pierre Boulez, I have to say. Yeah. And um, I mean, you go on to have your own TV series on France 2, uh, the TV yeah. channel called, called Presto, which I read was incredibly successful. Did you write the scripts or did you present it? Because I've not seen them. Uh, how did it no. work out? It, it, was, it was the the TV broadcast was an idea of a friend of mine, Pierre Charvet, who had the idea of the broadcast. And uh, it was three years long in France. So a very short format, like two and a half minutes, but in a, in a very interesting time of the day for the TV, which was just before the news at eight <laughs> yeah. o'clock. Can you yeah. imagine? Yeah. And the principle of the, the, the broadcast was to present and to say to the audience, you may know this melody or this music, by the way, it's Bach or Dvorak or uh, whatever composer. Um, and it was for my young orchestra, for sure, an incredible uh, opportunity to uh, rehearse all these works, to uh, record them and to make the orchestra a, a, a bit known. But I have to say that at the same time, it was funny because when I look it with the past uh, distance, I can uh, notice that it was a great opportunity, but also something that the people were very jealous of. Oh. And it didn't make, strangely enough, uh, it didn't make the, the orchestras uh, life easier, quite the contrary at the time, but maybe it's because my country may be sometimes a bit strange with his <laughs> own uh, artist, I don't know. But it was a great memory anyway, Presto, and um, I'm still um, work on and think of what could be the next generation of so formats or media things in our present time and for the future. Well, I, I look forward to seeing if, if you get any of those ideas off the ground. I'm going to stay very briefly on Le Siècle. If you look at a lot of period ensemble, uh, you know, uh, groups, they, they focus on maybe the classical era backwards. Your orchestra seems to go right. I mean, you know, I remember watching uh, your, you and your orchestra do the Rite of Spring on period instruments at the proms. You know, you go right uh, quite a long way, I would imagine, almost up to the present day where, you know, the instruments that people use now. Does that mean that your players have to have, you know, let's a bassoon that would have played the, the solo for the Rite of Spring in, in the, you know, 1912, I can't remember what it was. Uh, that's 1913, 13, yeah. uh, 1913, I was close. 
And, but also, you, they, they also need to own a bassoon that would have played in Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique and also own a bassoon that would have played Haydn and Mozart. This, am I right in that regard? Yes, yes, yes. Mm. It's really the signature of this orchestra and it's the project I wanted to, to, to grow and to build. Um, and the orchestra is still, from what I know, unique also today because of this aspect. So the orchestra uh, changes the instruments, the pitch for sure as well, yeah, yeah. Uh, from uh, um, a time to another time of music history. And the purpose of that is for sure not uh, to, to target to be the, uh, the best for every repertoire, even for sure we, we, we try to be the best for it, but the, the target of that is to, uh, to travel through the, the history of the music and uh, for sure for the audience to experience. Mm. Because one of my frustration when I was uh, uh, a student is that, for example, I was fascinated by the avant-garde, uh, which was with Boulez or Stockhausen. So I went to these concerts and I was fascinated by Bill Christie or Gustav Leonard playing Rameau or Bach. And mm. I, I had to visit other, other concerts. Mm. And the music history is also full of meeting points or full of motos which uh, traveled the centuries. And why not experiencing the uh, two separate um, times of music history in the same concert with the same virtuosity on the instruments. Mm -hmm. And for sure, the orchestra also uh, did develop a kind of what I call the modern virtuosity. The modern virtuosity for me should be to understand at the best the language of Johann Sebastian Bach and Luciano Berio. But it, with the same people and not to put in boxes specialists of that, specialists of that. So it's a kind of utopia orchestra and I'm very proud of the orchestra. And as you said, we, we, we went with repertoire which were not performed by the period uh, instruments orchestra, like the Ballet Russe, Stravinsky, but also like Ravel, Debussy, uh, Berlioz was already done a lot, but we have a special also affect with this music and Rameau and Beethoven. So the, the repertoire of the orchestra is big. We structure very well the activity of, of the orchestra because it has to be very well organized, as you can imagine. Yes. But it's, uh, I'm very proud of this band. So you should be. So you should be. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I, I know your recording of the Symphony Fantastique very well, and I love it. Um, and yeah, so you should be proud of, of that orchestra. Now, I have a question for you, uh, which is only for you, because I can, I'm absolutely positive nobody else has done this, of all of the other people I've recorded and interviewed with. So you founded and started Le Siècle, but in 2016, you're also the principal conductor of an orchestra that finished, that stopped, the, uh, the SWR Symphony Orchestra Baden-Baden and Freiburg. Uh, of course, to fill in the listener, what happened was it was decided that the Orchestra of Baden-Baden and Freiburg and the Orchestra of Stuttgart would merge and become the SWR Symphony Orchestra. What was that like? I can imagine it must have been quite emotional to know that an orchestra, a group of you know 80 to 100 to 110 people who live and breathe as one orchestra, they're almost like a flock of starlings in the sky, that then they move and, and fly together was was going to cease to exist. They were going to merge with another orchestra and become something else. What was it like? Um, I'm very, very fascinated by this. It was it was a very um, how could I say very sensitive, very dramatic story. Um, I took the position of music director there in Freiburg Baden Baden in 2011, and just after a few months of having beginning with them. I was told that there were plans to merge the two orchestras of the radio group. Uh. Um, so what I did at the time, and 
I don't regret it at all. I did fight against this decision. So mm. I did with uh, many musicians uh, all we could possibly at the time to avoid this uh, merger. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Um, but uh, I don't have the regrets not having done something. So I did really, I think, uh, all what I could have done at the time. Mm. And I spent five amazing years conducting mm. them. The For sure, the news that... Uh, or the, the, the perspective that the orchestra wouldn't exist as uh, itself uh, made our time even more intense, as you I'm can sure. imagine. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But now I have to say that the orchestra became what it is today. My friend uh, Theodore Currensis takes the, the music, the music directorship. He did and he does a great job. And... I have to say that today it's the best possible uh, new orchestra from these two uh, which could exist. Yeah. And I have to say that he did a, an, an amazing work and the orchestra sounds really with the qualities I used to know from them, which mm. are very special mm. because as you know, these radio orchestras in Germany and especially in Baden-Baden and Stuttgart, they were really built after the war to promote one of the, the most important thing at the time in Germany, the modern music. Yeah, the yeah, Germany, yeah. We, we can say the Germany rebuilt a kind of DNA of identity after the war, a lot through the music and the mo modern music. Not only German, because Boulez and Berriot came uh, very quickly and Maderna there to, to promote and just to perform their music. So, I, I, I can really see that this, this orchestra is shining with the best possibilities today. Well, that's but at good. the time, it was, yeah. it was very frustrating. And at, mm. and at the time, it was uh, also completely unfair. Unfair. Uh, and I mean, in, in, a, in a country like Germany, where music is so respected still, uh, we, we have some uh, more and more, sadly, bad examples. But still, it stays the capital country of the music in the world. Mm. That's absolutely true. Um, but yeah, I can imagine it was it was difficult times. But it sounds like at least the result was not a bad result, and they've kept some of their identity. And actually, for orchestras and even a country through their radio broadcasting service to promote new music is no bad thing. Because, you know, basically 250 years ago, orchestras only played new music. They, they didn't really look back like we do. We look back as far as we can look back. But, you know, then, you know, in Haydn and Mozart's day, they only played new music, fresh music. So, we, you know, we should be doing the same. Absolutely the same. So having asked you a question that I've never asked anybody before, I'm now going to ask you a question I, I know I've asked before, and it's about being a general music director of a city. Um, I've had three or four conductors on here with varying degrees of, um, what, what should we say, happiness about what they discovered the job was about. Some people have really enjoyed being a gay MD. Jack Van Steen hated it. He said to me, I absolutely hated it. 75% bureaucracy in meetings. I only got to conduct for 25% of my time. You've been gay MD of the Goetznik Orchestra Cologne and the Cologne Opera um, since 2014. How do you find it? Are you enjoying being that that sort of figurehead for the music of Cologne? Uh, I have to say, it's it's uh, still today. I, I I like it very much. Mm. I have to say because uh, the the system is uh, like that in Germany. You have two kind of of music directorship. You have, uh, for example, with the radio orchestras you have a, a, a principal conductor, music director, and then you have the city orchestras, which very often play uh, concerts and operas. Uh, for example, in Germany, you have Leipzig, you have Berlin, you have Dresden, you have Cologne, uh, many other, Hamburg, Stuttgart, and um, this position, what they called GMD, General Music Director, is um, a position where 
I, uh, the GMDs have direct contact normally to uh, the politicians, mm. which is not the case necessarily with the radio. The radio structure is so heavy bureaucracy that you reach the politics. Uh, uh, it's not the first uh, that you reach. With my job, uh, my uh, the people I, I really talk to is the mayor of the city. Yeah, and yeah. the mayor of the city deciding uh, in which direction I want to go with the music in the city. And then we organize the whole thing. Um, and I find this dialogue extremely healthy mm. because uh, at the end, the politics are paying for the orchestras. And uh, the, the, the fact that the direct uh, contact is uh, exists is, is is healthy so it doesn't mean that it's not complicated it's always complicated <laughs> but i like the fact that i uh, have the signature of what happens with my orchestra mm. and uh, also in every senses for example i i take the criticizes very very well i mean yeah, yeah. i have some people in the audience writing to me to say that they would never imagine but they take an abonnement in, in a concert series and since I'm, I'm there, they enjoy. Huh? And I have other people who say, but why do you program this music? I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I prefer Tchaikovsky yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I like it very much. And you can also, well, at my level, we can, I can influence also uh, I hope um, either or both, I can influence the, the, the resonance of my orchestra in the Germany, in the world, and also how we make music in the community. Mm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I like that very much. I like to be in charge and uh, to experience some things. Well, it's such a musical city, Cologne, um, that uh, to be involved you know, in a sporting term, in grassroots, you know, we're taking the orchestra and taking music to kids, to children, bringing them into the Philharmonie, bringing them, you know, I think it's so important. And it sounds like they've got the right person in charge. I mean, I go to Cologne three or four times a year and work with uh, the VDR Funkhaus Orchestra um, uh, in the uh, Vaurafplatz. And yeah, I love that city, but it, you know, you open up a brochure of what's going on at the Philharmonie and the Opera. There's music everywhere in Cologne. And, yeah. and I think and, and and city should be like that. You know, that's the point. Yes, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's the fourth city in Germany. So it's a big city, but still it's not that huge like Berlin. So it's very concentrated and you have not only the musical institutions, as you say, uh, the VDR, the Gürtzenich, the Opera, but also you have Musik Fabrik, uh, Concerto Köln, you know, when we talk mm. about music, and all these museums, it's amazing. Yeah. We have a concentration of a cultural institutions which is really uh, completely uh, unique. And Cologne, especially after the war, was considered like the most avant-garde city in the music. Oh. When, mm. for example, Georgi Ligeti, wanted to leave his country, uh, Hungary. He wanted to go to Cologne because he heard through the radio all the, the new music broadcast with the young Stockhausen Zubaita. And he thought, that's the city I want to go because it was like an Eldorado for the modernity. Mm. And uh, it's still true today. It was also true before the war when you see Mahler or Brahms coming to Cologne performing their new works with my orchestra. Mm. Brahms and uh, Gustav Mahler did the fifth symphony first time with my orchestra, Gürtzenich, the third symphony as well. Richard Strauss conducted Thiel Spiegel, conducted Don Quixote first time with my orchestra. So the list of the premiere is very impressive and there is a tradition to have a contact with which, what is the modernity. And it's something I wanted also to focus uh, in my in my work with the orchestra, and I like it very much. You've listened to a couple of episodes, I gather, so you will know that there is an eleventh question that every conductor has been asked, and it's about score preparation. 
Now, you know, you, yeah. you must see new scores on a regular basis because I know you do new music, but also you're delving back through history and finding obscure music that hasn't been performed and whatever else. When a new score lands in front of you, what is your system? Do you start, you know, big, go in small, or start small, go out big? And for the conducting students and geeks, and even just for me, are you a user of colours, red, blue, black, highlighter pens, or are you somebody who doesn't use any markings at all? What do you do when you learn a score, Francois? So I use lots of colours. Mm. I love colours. <laughs> and I, I, my technique will be to uh, notate the score the most that allows me to be free when I rehearse and when I conduct it. Yes. So I don't, with the colors, I can repair myself, either a very strange group in the orchestra, which are uh, in a in single color, or I don't know, a soloist at the opera. I decide uh, that uh, Mimi and Rodolfo are pink and blue. I don't know, I don't conduct <laughs> Bohem. No, right, yeah. Do that. <laughs> And then I structure, I start to annotate the score, reading it uh, with, for sure, the, the patterns of bars, how is it structured, and basically, once again, everything that could help me to be free and not to be in my score when I rehearse. Mm, mm. But I, I, I have to say, it depends on the composer, because when I, when I didn't... Uh, experience a composer, I need more time to yes. get into his or her language. But I would start very early. For example, now I, I, I have many things to conduct at the moment, but I, I have a, a new opera for me, Lohengrin Wagner, that I will conduct next December. Mm. So I already have the score and I already start now. So I start very early and it can be sometimes to read only one scene of the opera or one movement of the symphony, um, but to try to make it very in advance. Mm. Yeah, and you and you're also doing things like researching what was going on when Low and Green was written. Um, are you somebody who, at some point, will listen to recordings? Uh, some sure. Conducts, yeah, good. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, I, I listen to yeah. many recordings. Uh, it doesn't disturb me. I don't need and I don't want to listen. Then when I am in the rehearsals project uh, yeah. process, because it disturbs. But and I have. I am lucky, or maybe I, I formulate it differently. I want also to benefit from many different people work. Mm. For example, when uh, I do, uh, I don't know, a Janacek program, which I will do at the end of the season now with my Gertzenich, and I did, I never conducted Janacek music. So I contacted through the, the people working with me to musicologists who could help me to work, to give me some information about. And I researched personally a lot, as you said, what was written at the same time, what was uh, performed before, where was it performed, which, uh, which kind of orchestra, with, is, was it a big orchestra, how the orchestra was uh, in, the, in the pit or on stage, all the aspects that can give me some uh, input, mm. uh, I take it. I take it, and there is a whole structure around me that organizes these aspects, mm. and which I like very much. Mm. That mm. I, I learned from from Tom Kopman at the time when he did all these Bach cantatas, and I heard at the time he had like an army of musicologists <laughs> around him, uh, providing him all the materials. And I believe that a lot, uh, that we can not achieve uh, all alone, and that I need uh, help also. Mm. I take the help. I would imagine that also comes from starting uh, Le Siècle, where you've got musicians coming to you and saying, I've just discovered that actually they wouldn't have used this trumpet in 1850, they'd have used this trumpet in 1850. And so, you know, you're going to have people who you know are interested in the background in the research in the history you know some people aren't interested at all and just pick up a violin and play it whereas other people are interested you know i'm playing this on a modern trumpet well what would it have sounded like in 1850 or in 1913 or what were they playing you know and, and so yeah you're going to have friends that you can rely on and um well 
enjoy the Anacheck program. I love Anacheck very much, um, and uh, I hope you I hope you enjoy it. I love it, absolutely love it. Some of it's absolutely so hard to conduct, but you know, um, Taras Bulba is a piece I absolutely adore. But it took me a long time to work out how to conduct some bits of it. So wonderful. Does conducting fascinate you, and would you like to know more about it? Maybe you're starting out on your journey into conducting. Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions, and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear over 18 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists, and managers, and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can listen to 18 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. You can read articles I've written on programming, score marking, and a new series I'm starting very soon on string playing. And you can even have lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to that page are in the show notes attached to the episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Francois Xavier Rote. Francois, it's that time of the interview where we must work our way through the 10 questions. And I start with the first two as one. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the, the, the A that gives the oboe at the beginning of the con- uh, concerts. I mm. love this sound uh, because it's, it's the beginning of the event we are prepared for. Um, a sound I hate would be a, a very mechanical sound that we don't, uh, yes, uh, um, a test for emergency uh, uh, in the halls. So mm. and we have to leave the hall because it's, a, it's a, an exercise emergency. Well, uh, the last time I experienced one of those was about five to three in the morning uh, and it was a hotel fire alarm in Trondheim in Norway uh, and it was not warm outside I can tell you that as we all had to evacuate the building it was the loudest fire alarm I've ever heard um, but the other one the the I'm glad you said the concert for the tuning up a the oboes a for the concert because I absolutely agree with you because not only does it mean that we're about to walk out onto, onto the platform and give the performance of what we've been working on but for me, it means that it signals the end of the five minutes prior to a concert where I'm at my most nervous, where I'm stood in the wings, I'm stood there with my tails and my jacket on, and you know, you're holding your baton, the orchestra's all gone on stage, and you're stood there all on your own. They're the five minutes I hate the most. And the minute that oboe starts, I think, right, I'm seconds away from getting out there. I'm also excited, but you know, it's well, and the difference, and the reason why you, you, I'm glad you said concert was that Sir Roger Norrington, whose name will come up again in a minute, said it was the sound he hated um, because it it was the but he it, he um, was much more specific about that it was a rehearsal, it was the you know, the sound of uh, the orchestra sort of tuning up this melee of noise, and when you guest conducted, it was the it was the sound that signalled you were about to you know conduct an orchestra for the first time, and, and he hated he hated it. So there we go. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I think um, jogging. I, I, I try to jog every day. So mm. it would be one of the maybe longer jogging than uh, usual and walking. Mm. I, love to, I love to walk. I love, I love to discover streets or uh, cities I don't know so well. Uh, through walking mm. yeah I, and I, I'm, I'm actually i'm a very big fan of listening to podcasts ah. so and i try to uh, and i i listen to things which i have absolutely no idea of yes. so my podcast choice is very often things that I'm not at all specialist either of philosophy or sciences or whatever, but I try to, to, to get a little bit more intelligence through the listening of podcasts. <laughs> 
do you know what? I'd never listened to a podcast at all before I started this one. Uh, and now I do listen to podcasts, but I'm the opposite of you. I listen to podcasts about food and drink, which yeah, I love, and cricket, which I also love. So, you know, I, I actually listen to podcasts about things I, I'm, I love already. Maybe I should be more grown up and try and expand my mind and listen to things, you know, uh, about, you know, philosophy and engineering. And yeah, but for now, I'll stick with food and cricket. Next question. Can you name your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? One of my heroes is definitely Pierre Boulez. Mm. No question. He's one of the most extraordinary conductors. Um, one of my heroes who is not so well known is Hans Rosbaud. He was an amazing conductor. Mm. He did many premieres. He conducted Mozart music like nobody at the time. Hans Rosbaud, great conductor. Uh, and then I would quote Pierre Monteux for sure. Um, Georges Zell in many repertoires. Uh, mm. Yes, I have many heroes of the past. <laughs> it's good to have many heroes of the past. Question five, some conductors find difficult to answer, some don't. And I'm interested in your answer because in episode 100, when I asked Sir Roger Norrington who would be one of his favourite current conductors, he gave the answer, Francois Xavier Roth. So I'm oh. interested to know who would be one of your favourite current conductors or conductor. You can have one or more. I would definitely say... Um conductors who are not really conductors <laughs> <laughs> because of their trajectory and of their career. Yes. But someone like René Jacobs, for mm -hmm. me, is mm -hmm. one of the most amazing conductors, even he's not really a conductor. He's a musician and he's... Um, vision for music, his passion is so strong that he even doesn't need his body. For, for me, it's an example. Mm. But I have many others. I mean, um, I'm fascinated by Barenboim, mm. uh, what some of he, what he does and the, 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 the musical power he has uh, is very impressive for me. Simon Rattle is an example for me. Um, and many others. I mean, I have. I said already, Theodore Kurensis is a great friend of mine. He's a, an amazing conductor, but uh, I have many. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are so many. That's the, that's the point. I think that's why some conductors find it difficult, because there are so many, and others don't want to miss out some names, you know. Uh, that's why they find it difficult. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? So, I could say... And I, I thought for a long time, the hardest work I did conduct was Le Marteau Sommet by Pierre Boulez. Mm. It's, it's for a, a small ensemble, but the music is so complex and so difficult to conduct. Um, so I would say it's that, but at the same time, I can say sometimes it, it's really a Haydn symphony. Yeah. Yeah. When, you, the music is so pure, the music, the language is so direct that you can't hide at all. Uh, and you have to be the, the more honest pop, uh, person at the time. So it's difficult to say. On a technical reason, yes, some or the Soldat and Zimmerman, the, the opera so complex and Martus Ahmed, things like that, but also some things which are technically absolutely not difficult at all, but where as a conductor, you have to be so uh, intense, so honest, that it puts you like a mirror uh, in front of yourself. Mm. And it's the greatest difficulty I find in my job as well. It's very interesting because you've reminded me, again, going back to Sir Roger Norrington, but he, when he talked about Haydn, he said, he, he thinks you've almost got to have quite a childish personality or childlike personality. You've got to be the sort of person who's very happy to spend hours sitting on the floor playing with your, your young children to be able to conduct Haydn because in the end it needs that sort of sense of joy and simplicity. 
of course intensity of course what you're doing is important but but it needs that just to let go and just have fun with it to a degree um very and, true and then what you've just said to adds another layer onto that absolutely it does add, add another layer onto it so yes it, it is difficult you know the point about the, the podcast is conducting is difficult, whether you look at it in a technical way or just simply trying to get the message across um, to the orchestra. Um, yeah, wonderful answers. Next one. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? It's maybe something from my house here in Nîmes. Mm. I have some little objects which reminds me my house. Yeah. And... I am not uh, superstitious, but still, I like what certain objects reminds me. Yeah. And when I look at them, when I touch them, I I, I belong to this house. I'm so far off, mm. so it's very simple. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I, when I when I was a violinist, you know, I, behind my bows in the lid of my case. I, like many people, would have photos. And I would have photos of my kids, a photo of my wife, you know, and it, which meant that when we were on a long trip with Simon Rattle in 98 or whatever, we were away for a month or three weeks with Andrews Nelson's, every time I opened my case, at least I'd get a, a reminder of home and where I, you know, where I come from, where I belong and whatever else. Um, and, I, yeah, I think we, sometimes we do need something like that. Uh, it, yeah, yeah. Especially if you love somewhere, which you obviously do with Neem, you love living there. And yeah, it's very important. Uh, the next one, any answer you like. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think that it's a very interesting question, especially after the crisis we went through. Yes. Because personally, I think I always... Uh, did cope with the rules of how an orchestra works with a, a conductor and the seducing part of it in the best sense, mm. uh, the, the, the go, the give, and, and in both directions, the conductor in the direction of the orchestra and the, the opposite. And today, I think that... Um, I miss some um, radicality or simplicity in the whole process of it. Mm. I think that now, after this crisis, we realize we don't have to lose time. Mm. So either, uh, I don't know if it's clear what, I, what, I, what I'm thinking of. I think that it should be uh, more direct. If an orchestra doesn't like the conductor, let's say it earlier. <laughs> let's not yeah. waste time. You know, yes. trying to to find a, a zone. And myself, I, I found myself doing much much more radical choices now, mm. and I like that. I think mm. we don't need um, this all decorum. Uh, we we need to 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 deliver together. Yeah. And an orchestra and a conductor should be all the time a team. Mm. So uh, it's, it's behind. I, I don't like anymore these days where or when uh, it was uh, the, the, only the protocol or the, 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 in a way the star system, both for the orchestra or for the conductors. We need some good music and we need one vision. So I would I would uh, go for a more radical uh, sponge between the orchestra and the conductors. Well, and I, I, I had the, the, the great opportunity to work with great orchestras every year. And now after the COVID, I decided to reduce the list of the orchestra I will work with, but really to go on the point with them and big cycles with them and... Yeah. Well, what what it what what that will help with is not having to go and guest conduct so much, um, and that thing where you know you you are put in front of an orchestra who don't know you, you meet them for the first time, and sometimes you know as as we've gone all the way back through all of the episodes, some most all of us have had a bad week. You know, we all we've all been somewhere and had a bad week, and it preys on your mind. And I since COVID, I thought you know I had a bad week about two or three months before COVID started. 
um, because one slash two players became very aggressive towards me from about 20 minutes into the rehearsal. I've now decided if I was in that position again, I'd just turn around to the orchestra and say, look, I'm not here for a fight. If you, if you want to play this, I'll just put my bat on, shut my score and walk away. I don't need the money that much for me to stand here and put up with this shit. So it, it's a two-way street as well. Not only if an orchestra doesn't like you, please tell me, and then, you know, we, we don't have to go through all of this. Well, it's the other way around. You know, I don't, I don't have to put up with this either. And I, I think you're so right in the fact that if you've got lots of people that you like working with and you can get to the truth quickly, well, then... Do it, absolutely. Yes, but I mean, on both sides, it's also an appeal from, from me uh, for the orchestras. I think the orchestras need also themselves to know more what they want. Yes, yeah, they and, do. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not only on one side, and we have also to make choices. I think that um, the concerts, when the concerts were cancelled, it's, it's really so uh, wide. And the miss of the concerts helped us, I think, to realize that at least when we will be able to do them again, which is the case now, mm. we have to, to, to take also to realize how important these evenings are. So mm. it will go in, in this sense. Mm. No, I, I don't need bullshit. No, 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 exactly. Uh, but you've also brought out one other thing, which is I remember saying the very first time I stood in front of an orchestra again after the initial lockdown, I stood in front of the CBSO and I said, yeah, having started this podcast and talked to the likes of yourself and all, all, you know, over 100 conductors, I said, if any conductor stands in front of an orchestra after this pandemic and is nasty and rude to them, they haven't realised how much they missed them during the pandemic. You know, other musicians could do concerts in their living room and live stream them and all of that. We couldn't st sit there waving our arms around with nobody playing. You know, we need orchestras. And therefore, anybody who's horrible to orchestras since the, after the pandemic need, really needs their head looking at. Um, and, and yeah, uh, no, I agree with everything you said very, very, very much. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Chef. Brilliant. Or restaurant. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I love to eat. I love the wine. I love the gastronomy. Um, and for sure, it's very close to what I'm, I'm doing because the, the chef and the conductors are very uh, close yeah. in the preparation, in everything, in the event part of the activity, but definitely in a restaurant. And, and also they've got a team beneath them who need to run perfectly well with your overall vision of whatever's gone on the menu or how you've designed the dishes. Absolutely agree with you. Which means that I now cannot wait to hear your answer to question 10. So Francois, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Alors, um, definitely, I think I would go for a fish. Mm. Um, uh, a turbo or a salmonier and uh, I would drink an amazing white uh, Bourgogne wine. Mm. Mm. Perhaps, <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, is it, Turbot is called the, the king of the sea, I think, or something. Um, I mean, what a what a wonderful choice. And yeah, I don't drink white wine very often, but I will drink it if it's very chilled with fish. Um, absolutely <laughs> agree completely. Francois, it's been an absolute joy. I've loved chatting to you. And I hope very much in the future, maybe when you're over in the UK conducting the LSO as principal guest, I'll come down and we'll have another chat. It would be lovely to meet you again. But thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Michael. And congrats for your podcast. It's really such a work and amazing and very interesting. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an English conductor who started out as a cellist but is now enjoying a flourishing career as a conductor. I first met him when in 2016 he became the assistant conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>